thirsty? You've come to the right place to wet your whistle. It's the Liquid Lifestyle with Ryan McGarrian, a full hour of liquid refreshment. Now, here's Ryan. And a very wonderful Saturday afternoon to you, my thirsty listener. And if the sound of my voice is reaching you today, uh, you know that it's time for another round with us here at the Liquid Lifestyle on the Radio Northwest Network. And as always, I am your host and on-air bartender, Ryan McGarrian. And if uh, you haven't been with us, uh, this little show of mine is dedicated to all things liquid and delicious, of course, with a particular leaning towards what we call potent potables, uh, which includes spirits, of course, and cocktails and beers and wines. And man, sometimes we just get really crazy here and we foray into fine coffee and tea, but uh, not as much as we probably should. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that in the back of my mind for future episodes coming up. But uh, we also like to share the stories and uh, perspectives of the fine folks and joints that serve all this stuff up, be them right here in P-Town or in parts far, far beyond. So today we are coming at you from my little studio here at Oven and Shaker, a uh, pizzeria slash cocktail oasis that uh, I have with my partners, uh, Kathy Wims uh, of Nostrana and Kurt Huffman. And uh, I'm stoked to be uh, sitting here with uh, a good friend, Pamela Wisnitzer from New York. And uh, man, she's got uh, such a cool story. She has emerged as one of the top bartenders in the world, having worked at some of the just the greatest bars on the planet and some of the most relevant bars on the planet, which is equally, uh, I think, is interesting. So, uh, Pamela, so good to have you. Hi. Good morning. Oh, good, <laughs> good morning. It's, uh, it's, it, it is, you know, it's uh, morning. What, did you just get up? No. Yeah, I mean, I'm, no, I've been up since 8.30. So. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so you just got your, yeah, it must be that New York time you're on. But, yeah. uh, but I tell you what, I mean, there's so much for us to talk about, you know. I mean, you're, you know, you know managing what many people consider uh, the greatest cocktail bar in the world, but a lot of experts have like kind of crowned it uh, the greatest cocktail bar in the world, the Dead Rabbit. I mean, that's incredible experience. And then moving on to what you're doing now with the Seamstress, uh, you know, but before we get to that, you know, what is your, what is your story? Like, you know, how did you get into this sticky mess? <laughs> I've, it's so funny. I feel like everyone, if you say like, how do you end up in this industry it's, there's no like there's no individual who's ever gonna be like oh I just woke up and said I'm gonna be a bartender like maybe one or two people who are like my grandfather was a bartender or like my great grandfather but oh that's Sean Kenyon I know I was gonna say that's a Sean Kenyon story <laughs> that's, that's very very much a Sean Kenyon story but um, I think all of us have some type of like weird quirky story which is really great mine so I'm actually I'm a, I'm a product of a bartending school, Bartending Academy, but it, it's not so simple. I Oh, wow, those things work? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the best ROI ever, $120, has very much profited into a wow. huge career. So I went to Barnard College on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, uh, part of Columbia University. My friends were in charge of the Columbia Bartending Academy, which in New York City, a lot of people go to this program. Um, you know, they teach you how to, like, shake your Manhattans, and they teach you how to make, like, the creamsicle, which is a great cocktail no one ever knows about, but I think is just disgustingly awesome. But um, so I only did the class because my two best friends were teaching it and they taught it every day of the week. But I took the Thursday class on purpose because I said, hey, Pam, why don't you take this class? And then afterwards, you'll help put the liquor away with us in the liquor room before we go out at night, meaning a way for us to like pregame for free. And as poor college students, like that seemed like a really great bet. Plus, like all my friends had done it. So I said yes. And there were about like 120 people in my class. It's like, these are big courses. Um, and I actually studied, and when it came time for the examination, the top 6% get 
brought into the agency. So I placed number one out of 120 people. Well done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it was great. I got my booze on for five weeks straight, you know, drank, drank my well worth $120 and then, you know, scored the top. But I didn't actually, like, I didn't really use it or utilize it um, the rest of school. Like, you know, you could be in the agency, but I just, you know, I thought it was just fun to have. So I always kept that in the back of my mind. I ended up being like the sorority bartender for my sorority house. That's right. I was in a sorority. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I was I was president of Greek life. Well, so I tell I, you what. I mean, you know, like having having that context. You know, I mean, a lot of the consumers you're going to deal with for the course of your career are going to have been in sororities, and 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 you know what? Just having that context is probably going to give you an edge uh, as a consultant and as a bar owner down the road. I I think it's kept me well rounded. <laughs> it lets me it lets me know how to deal with large parties, um, and and planning and. and and you know, Trump like crisis management in any in any time. So, no, it was really great. And I I graduated from school and I I worked a year and a half in event planning. I was really good at it, but my heart wasn't in it. And it's really difficult doing a job that your heart's not in into. Um, I always say like if you if you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life. So I was. I just was trying to find fulfillment, and I actually was very interested in going to children's educational literature and publishing, and I still feel very, very strongly about that topic. I just feel like illiteracy in our country is a growing trend. I see a lot of kids that don't even have like paperback books in their house, um, and I think about how I grew up, and I hated that. So I wanted to get a job in that. Started a tech startup that sort of had to do with education, uh, was doing marketing, but I just feel like I was a glorified like bar back for all of them if that makes sense like you know jack of all trades for the people who work for the company and I was so disgruntled and I was so upset so on Saturday nights about twice a month there was a small little bar two blocks from my apartment that would let me guest bartend for two hours before going out on Saturdays yeah so I would bartend from I think it was like eight to ten and that this, this isn't bartending let me tell you like there are no shakers there's nothing there's like plastic cups that you could like go between to like maybe make something pour it out but my friends would all come out I'd make like $110 in two hours and then we'd go out you know and I loved it and I loved the energy and uh, and then in 2008, 2009, I lost my job because of the recession. I'm like a recession kid. And um, at first I was like, fun employment's awesome. <laughs> Girl, I got to jump in. Recession kid is such a good name for like a future Pamela cocktail. Like just like, dude, dude, you got to have the recession kid. Yeah, the, rece- the recession kid. I feel like there were so many of us who were like what we call fun employed or recession babies. Fun employed. That yeah. is like the best word I've ev- that I've heard on this show ever. Well done. It was great. I mean, like you got like a weekly check that you, you cashed in and then you just sort of like figured out a way to make some more money and you just had some fun my parents were like what the heck are you doing with your life so I I don't know my friends used to guest bartend at a sports bar in Murray Hill which if those listeners don't know what Murray Hill is in New York it's like when you graduate college and you need to go live somewhere in New York you go live there because it's like a continuation of college so it's really fratty it's really young a lot of state school kids but I mean but it's fun um and I, my friends used to guest bartend for charity once a month. They had this floating party um, that they would guest bartend. These corporate like finance bros, my friends are. So they are like, we know the manager of a place. We can get you a job probably. And I met, went with the owner, his name or manager's name's Eric Binder, who's still a very good friend of mine today. And he, I was his first hire, and he hired me as a daytime girl. And he goes, this isn't a really glorified job. You're gonna work in the daytimes through five days a week, and it's not fun. They're not gonna have many people, but like I can give you this job. And I said, okay, I'll take it. Like right away, because I'm, I'm tired of being fun employed. Yeah, I was like, I was like, maybe I can still be fun employed and do this, which I did do for a while. Shh, don't tell the government. But <laughs> Roger that. It was, it was great, and I, I, I saw this just as an opportunity to take, 
take this little insignificant job and maybe potentially turn into something great. And within like a few months, I would have the bar full every single day and I'd walk away cash in hand with like $350 on a day shift. And it like all the bartenders were like, what the heck are you doing? And I was like, I don't know. I'm just being myself and talking and making drinks and, and pulling beers and, and just like loving everything about this. And there was such energy and meeting people from different walks of life and talking to them and like having the bar is just your domain. And I think that's where I got hooked. That's so cool. And, you know, like the fact that you learn that, you know, paying the bills behind the bar starts with your personality and the way you engage the people over the bar. You know, that's the most important component. I mean, you've gone on to become, you know, an epic mixer of drinks. But, I mean, having that as your original understanding or framework from which to become a great bartender, that was critical, right? Yeah. I actually, I feel really bad for people who start in cocktail bars. Actually, I feel really bad for people who start in cocktail bars. And I'll say that because I think... I think a lot of us who are extremely well-rounded behind a bar or, like, really have stories to tell are those who worked in, like, the fast-paced places, the clubs, the sports bars, the strip clubs. Like, you know, we people worked in slews of places which make them super, like, really fantastic at the jobs that they're at right now. Um, if you start at a cocktail bar, you're starting... It's like learning how to eat foie gras before you eat, like, a hamburger, ah, you know? And I, I could see that. Yeah, and it's, it's just like, why would you start there when you should start with, like, a good basic, a good staple, and then grow from it? Like, I was my own bar back, and I cut all my lemons and limes, and I got brought up on the ice. I did, I did everything myself, so I learned that the value of my, the outcome of a dollar was based upon everything that I put into it. You know, the input equaled the output, and I, it was, like, one of the most valuable lessons. Totally. Um, Totally. Had. I mean, I feel the same way. I mean, my first gig was back in 96, 97 in Club Med. And I, I mean, I could do a whole yes! show. Yes! You worked at Club Med? I was a Club Med kid, oh, for sure. That place is crazy. Dude, we could do a whole segment on that. But actually, man, we're coming up to the end of our first segment. It's so much fun chatting with Pamela Witznitzer from New York. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment. And welcome back to The Liquid Lifestyle here on the Radio Northwest Network. Again, this is your on-air bartender, Ryan McGarrian. We're sitting here with Pamela Wisnitzer from New York, uh, one of the top bartenders in the world, worked at some of the great bars uh, of our age. And uh, in the last segment, Pamela, you were uh, kind of, you've been, it's just been fun to kind of hear about your journey. And it's very dynamic, you know, starting with uh, the bartending school at, what, Columbia University. And then... That's called Ivy League bartending there. Of course it is. Yeah, it's, like, it's like top notch, I think. Yeah, <laughs> tip top, as we like to say here on the Liquid Lifestyle. And then uh, you know that gig at Bar Twelve in uh, Murray Hill, where you were just—I mean, you know, you, like you said, you were making hand over fist and learning that you know the personality, the urgency, all those things are critical to the foundation of being a great bartender. So. What's what happens next? I mean, I just I'm sitting here just excited to kind of go through the story with you. So so you leave or are you know or you decide that you you're t- you're you're just just ready to go and move on. What happens next? Yeah, it was I I think it was about like a year and a half into being there that I started getting more serious about becoming a bartender, and I was like I think this is a valuable career path. In 2011, I was like, my parents were like, we don't believe you. Because, <laughs> like, they don't come from that mindset. My dad's a doctor, my mom's a teacher. Like, they don't, none of us in my family are from hospitality background. So I looked up, like, bartender unions and organizations, and I found the USBG online, and I signed up immediately. I had no idea what it was, but I thought it would legitimize 
myself as a bartender. So I joined the USBG. I started going to meetings. Um, I found a grad school program at NYU in food studies. I signed up for that too. And I was like really trying to show them that I was very serious about being in this field because I think that I was like mom, dad, like there's a few, there are a few industries that are completely recession and depression proof. Okay. And in hospitality and food, in the good times people drink, in the bad times people drink, and there's always a market for this, no matter what. And globally, you can go anywhere. It's a transferable skill set. It's not like certain certain jobs are so niche you can't do that. And I, I, I recognize that. And we're and I recognize that we were in on a, a, just about to have a cocktail boom. And I was like, if I get in now at this level, I can really ride the wave and like really be a part of this community. So... I started doing my own mixology at the sports bar, bringing my own tools and bitters and bringing things, and I got in a lot of trouble for it by my owners because other bartenders couldn't replicate my drinks. Um, and then finally I started um, sending off my resume to lots of lots of big wigs and lots of people. I'm not going to name names because a lot of them are my friends now and they will never remember me dropping off my resume. And it was sad to not hear from them or to hear that like I wasn't good enough because my resume didn't have all that um, credential, all the credentials on it. But um, I, I worked on the opening staff for a little bit at Empeon, Alex Dupex, like taco joint in, in New York. Yeah, I've heard all about that. How, is, yeah. is that just the most, I mean, that just sounds delicious, that place, right? Yeah, it's delicious. It was, I was there for, for a bit, like not really too long. It just, something didn't resonate with me and the person in charge, but at least I did that. And then, so working in really what, really what launched me into like the more cocktail world was this little bar called Lubly, which isn't around anymore. Um, and it's where I met so many of my friends, who, so many of my really good friends now who are brand ambassadors or just happen to be my best friends, um, would come sit there or I'd meet them and say, come to me on Thursday nights when I work at this little bar by myself, you know, where I can make cocktails. So he, gave, he gave me all the support. Ben DeMarchelier was his place. He gave me all the support to make cocktails, wine, food. And I just kill it there all night. And it's where I actually got the opportunity to like start mixing and playing with things. And um, it is single-handed because of that bar, and people still talk about it to this day, like that I was able to create a, a small platform for myself. And from there, I moved on to a place called King, uh, which was headed up by a chef named Francis Derby. Um, and I had a cocktail program with a bunch of my friends who were on staff, and it was a great program. Uh, unfortunately, we had a corrupt owner. So uh, while we brought in over 50% of revenue there, which is insane for a bar, uh, I couldn't stay there because of the way he, he was. And then uh, because of a rep, her name's Antonia Fatizi, um, my Bulls Geneva rep, because when I went to create that program, Antonia, I was like, I want a Bulls cocktail, and my Southern Wine Spirits rep was like, really? Okay. <laughs> so she, he connected me to her. We became good friends, and then one day she texted me out of the blue in 2012, was like, I know two guys opening a bar in New York City and looking for a strong female who wants to learn. Are you interested? I was like, who are they? He says, their names are Sean Muldoon and Jack McGarry, and they're opening a place that's going to be called The Dead Rabbit. I don't know much more than that. So I met Sean and Jack in August of 2012, and the rest is honest to God history from there. It was like, I met with them three times. One of them was making cocktails, one, two, one of them was a walkthrough of a very bare space. And I just put a lot of faith in them. I, I thought to myself, how could you pull off a cocktail bar at the very bottom of Manhattan, of the bottom of the island? But they had such, so much passion that I really resonated with that and connected to it. So I said yes, and that was it. And that's how I got looped into the Dead Rabbit, which is 
the world's best bar <laughs> now. I mean, it's so. it's hard to argue that it's definitely you know at the very tip top of that list. I mean, for and for those who haven't had the opportunity to to make it to New York for uh, a, a cocktail circus of deliciousness in the last couple of years, uh, the Dead Rabbit is owned by our friends, like she said, Sean Muldoon and Jack McGarry. It is a it's like a tri level experience down at the yeah. tip of the financial district. And what I love about this place is like you know the first level is like a, a, an Irish pub. You get a freaking dynamite Guinness, Irish coffees that'll change your life. The you, cocktails down there now are spectacular. Wow. Like okay. you, you, the second floor is really like known for cocktails, but the first floor cocktails are just really dynamic. Oh, it's, it's great. Man, just that exp- I mean, you, you, that's the dream experience to be able to get on on a team like that. And, uh, you know, what... Uh, you know, when you look back on your time with the Dead Rabbit, I mean, what are some of the things that I guess you you, you value most with regards to, to specific learning experiences? I mean, is it more on the mixing drink side? Is it more on the hospitality side? What are some things that stood out about working at one of the great bars in history? I like I like to think that the fun part was I worked, you know, I think a lot of credit has to be given to Bobby Hiddleston, who was brought over from Milk and Honey in London as the head bartender. And his name's not thrown out there as much, but when I think back to my experience at Dead Rabbit, I learned so much of my bartending technique from him. Um, I like to say that Jack and Bobby brought the technique, I brought the hospitality okay. like aspects because they're so used to the you like the European bartending style, which is like head down, work, work, work. And I'm of the put on a show and work. And so I had to like push them to like inter- engage, like laugh, maybe dance a bit behind the bar. And I just remember like, one time working with Jack and he was like being really serious and I went behind him and we were suspenders um, at the Dead Rabbit and I went behind him and snapped his suspenders in front of the guests and he, I look, he looked like he was going to kill me and then he just erupted into laughter and it was like moments like that where you know like they taught me speed and efficiency they taught me you know like grabbing bottles and fluidity in movement and I I was nice that I could bring break them out of the shell that like their goofy side and like their actual personalities behind a bar and I think that it was this, we were also synced up together the whole staff like Frankie Marshall was on the staff and, and this guy Dan and Greg Buda came on Long Ty who are still there and just it was nice to get components from everyone's experience in like bartending style in one nutshell in one space yeah. so Man, I tell you what, I mean I, I still think watching Jack McGarry bartending is, you know on a busy night is one of the coolest things you'll see in our entire industry yeah. and uh, we're coming up on the end of our second segment this is awesome you are tuned into the liquid lifestyle on the radio northwest network And welcome back to the Liquid Lifestyle here on the Radio Northwest Network. I hope you're enjoying a very, very relaxing Saturday afternoon and enjoying the conversation we're having with Pamela Wisnitzer from New York City, one of the world's top bartenders. And uh, man, in our last segment, we were talking about your experience at Dead Rabbit. And I tell you what, I'm I'm so jealous of the, the time you got to spend with some of the great bartenders on the planet from all over the planet. And, you know, I guess it leads me that just thinking about our what we were talking about leads me to a place where I guess I want to kind of know what what's what is the Pamela Wisnitzer kind of drinking not drinking but the mixing perspective you know I you know I mean I think the word bar chef gets thrown out a lot I don't like to use that term but there's obviously what we do is very culinary and as culinary kind of expressionists we'll we'll call it you know each one of us has a certain way of quote unquote liquid cooking and I guess what what do you what's what's your bent whoa <laughs> um I, you know, I, I like 
I enjoy cocktails, but I enjoy cocktails. Like sometimes I think people are too challenging in drinks. I think they're overly complicated or using ingredients that really shouldn't be in a cocktail. Um, I think we're at a stage, we were at a stage where things were like overly difficult and now we're simplifying them a lot, which is great. When I make a cocktail, I don't think about bartenders. I think about the consumer and I think about the neighborhood that we're in. Um, when I was creating the seamstress, it's so funny, when I was creating the seamstress menu, I took out the flavor Bible, which I think is a phenomenal, phenomenal book. Um, and if everyone doesn't have it at home, whether you cook or you don't cook, you should have it. Um, and I was just thinking, I'd, I always start off with like one concept of one flavor. Okay, and from there, then I see on the list like other flavors that like that relate to it, and then I go to that flavor, and I start creating a triangle of, of three ingredients that really go together. I don't necessarily start with like a base spirit, um, unless it's something specific. Like for instance, I will say not just because you're here, but like a drink that's on our menu is called the Whiz Fizz. Uh, it's my super narcissistic. Um, cocktail because people are like what do you like to drink and I was like I like everything but I did make one drink that was completely crafted off of what I like so um, it starts with aviation gin which I really enjoy because of the sarsaparilla and I'm a huge fan of root beer um, and from there I was like I really love Amaro's and I love Chinar and I know Chinar will go really nicely with that gin um, but I really like Ramos gin fizzes and I like root beer floats and so how can I put this together because I think Ramos gin fizzes are fantastic and anyone who denies it maybe it's because you're lactose intolerant but if you deny it then you're you're crazy it's a beautiful cocktail and so I, you know I paired up with lemon which obviously it brings out the expression of the citrus and the in the gin and then vanilla um, the vanilla notes go like so nicely actually with the lavender the hints of lavender there in the gin and also gonna be with the root beer pairing um, vanilla syrup and you shake that with half and half a great little technique I learned at the dead rabbit you don't need heavy cream to make Ramos's um, maybe the head's not gonna be as thick but you can actually shake it and do it all in under a minute and it's just as good if not sometimes more enjoyable so shake that up with an egg white then you know dry shake it and then add the cream in shake it up again and then instead of soda water I use root beer which brings out the whole drink together and it's just it that drink flies off our shelves and I think that's like a that's exactly the process I go through when I make a drink and all I think about is once you drink it down to the bottom would you order it again and that's the number one question I ask with every cocktail I make so when I made the seamstress menu I had I was in the kitchen which made me really jealous of the way Rain's Law Room is set up at Megan Dorman's place because her, her setup is a kitchen so you can just grab things and you're around a big island and it was the best way to ever test for cocktails. And I had about, at any time, eight people in the room including the bar owners, a few bartenders, a few regular consumers because um, I wanted the real opinion from everyone. And I'd make the drink and I'd make it a few times and then finally we get to a place where every person had to say they liked it in the room. Um, it, I don't make drinks for bartenders. Yeah. I don't really believe in that concept. I believe in the drinks for the consumers because they're the ones that are going to come in and drink it. It just happens to be that bartenders are always going to like the drinks that are for the consumer. And I want things that are interesting, like, you know, peaks areas of curiosity. Um, uses some really cool ingredients in fun ways, but like a completely, completely approachable. Um, and makes people want to say, how do you make this at home? Yeah. And I like drinks that can be replicated at home. Yeah, I'm the same way. I mean, you're a lot of so much of what you're saying is absolutely resonating with me. I mean, just, you know, you know, making sure that your drinks have a bent towards the consumer because, you know, we all want to stay on the revenue development program, don't we, as like bar owners and bar managers, but also, you know, just the idea of you know, repeatable drinks. I always like to talk about sessionability. We use that we use that term a lot, obviously, with beer. But you know, I'm always thinking about that, like you, mm -hmm. uh, in mixed drinks, because to me, 
a bar culture that's really revenue positive is built not so much on the first order, but on the third of yeah. the same drink. You can't if you have if you have too much alcohol in drinks. Also, it's just going to knock your guests off their stool, and then after two drinks, they can't have any more. So the idea is that they can have three cocktails, four cocktails. And I am a huge proponent of low proof. I can't. T- like I'm so proof. with you on that. Yeah, low proof is great for a few reasons, but like one, so people can actually sit and drink for a while, and two, you can offer it at a lower price point, and that's really sexy on the menu. Um, when people see that a cocktail, like in New York, the average cocktail is going to be like thirteen, maybe fourteen dollars, but when you see something's like ten or eleven dollars on a menu, you know people's eyes are going to be geared towards that. Plus, it's safe. It's very safe to see that your guests are ordering like a sherry cobbler, and you're like in your mind as a bartender, you're like, thank God, because you don't want to lead them with like a. a vodka dirty martini and have them drink three of them and you're like crap like what how am I going to get this person out of here safely um so for me I I I love low proof I love drinks for the consumer um I do like seasonality of drinks um it's very important to be aware of that but luckily we do have ways to get around that like with companies like perfect puree or baron like you can have citrus and ingredients that you want all year round and I'm a big I love jam I'm going to say I love jam and cocktails. Yeah, and you know what? You don't see, I feel like jam is an under, I mean, so, you know, you see certain bartenders really kind of make strong use of, of jam on a regular basis. I see more of it in London, but you don't see it a lot in the States. And I, I you know, I hope to see it more often. Yeah, we have, we have a ton of jam on my menu. And I feel like that's just my secret ingredient because like, for, like forget about the sugar and everything else. You have flavor and sugar and it's preserved. So yeah. nothing's going to go bad. And, and texture, right? You got that, that, that texture does, does add a little bit to, to your cocktails, right? Yeah. That's my number. Actually, that's my number one pet peeve with cocktails is um, I'm a texture freak. And so we just had a, we just had a tasting with my bar staff and I would look at them and say, this has no texture. This has no mouthfeel. And I would make people like remake it again or talk about it um, in ways that to create it. And I think that's something I really learned from Dushan Zarek. I did learn underneath him. Um, also with Jack and Bobby was always talking about the fourth dimension texture. And I'm sorry for all the listeners out there, but texture comes with sugar and a lot of times sugar is going to be a big reason why you have texture. So it's okay to have a bar spoon of sugar into a drink. It's not going to harm you. It's going to be fine, you know, but it's actually important as a binding ingredient and also to make it, make it well-rounded. Um, For sure. You know, one of the, you know, I think that's been a challenge, at least from my perspective, uh, within the bar culture of the past you know, 10 years is, uh, you know, there's been, people are, bartenders, I think, myself included, you can, we can be in tip, we don't want to be the sweet drink person, you know, so I think what's happened is, I, I mean, is there's been this almost hyper drying out uh, of drinks to where they're not even drinkable because there's almost, I think, sometimes a fear uh, amongst bartenders and their peers that somebody might come in, they might, someone might come in and if the drink's just perhaps has any perspective of sweetness in it that they may not uh that it may not be cool so uh you know i always you know i always talk about you know sugar as like butter in a saute you know it, it like you said it amplifies it creates texture and it's just and, and and the use of sugar in a cocktail to me between you know the use of sugar by a great bartender and one who is still trying to get their stuff figured out you know it's kind of like the difference between you know a saute by an excellent chef who uses just the right amount and you know bad hotel cooking yeah i mean it's just it's i love that when someone everyone walks in they're like not too sweet i don't like sweet i don't like sweet and like you don't have to worry because the drinks are really balanced on my menu but it's um it's funny because they're going to drink drinks and like frankly to me i think that there's a fair amount of sweetness in it but people like people like sweet we're we are geared as as infants and as children the way we're born to like sweet we learn bitter you know, and savory and everything else. So I don't know. It's, I think that concept will start fading away once people see more drinks are balanced. But 
Um, sweet's not a bad thing, and actually, if you put the a properly balanced sweet cocktail in front of someone or a sweeter, and people are going to drink it up real fast. So yeah, and coming from the New York scene, I, I I've always been um, admired kind of the culture that originally started with Dale, Dale DeGroff, trickled down Julie and 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 Audrey and uh, and Sasha, uh, you know, and and they were they were never afraid of sweetness that but they were just like, exactly like you said it was all about balance and harmony and you know you have to have if you've got bitter you're gonna have to have a little bit of sweet if you have a lot of acidity you're very likely going to have to add sweet as well but uh, hey we are man this is flying by as it always does and uh, we're coming up to the end of our third segment again we are talking with Pamela Wisnitzer uh, right now she's at the bar seamstress which which we're going to jump into in the next segment uh, you're listening to the liquid lifestyle on the radio Northwest network and uh, as always I just hope uh, I hope you're having a great time uh, uh, sitting on the bar with us and we'll be right back at you Welcome back to the Liquid Lifestyle here on the Radio Northwest Network. We are chatting with Pamela Wisnitzer, uh, epic New York bartender who is now running the program at a new bar. Or I guess it's not maybe super new, but maybe in the last, what, in the last year? Yeah, since February. New bar called The Seamstress. Uh, I think that's a really sexy name. And uh, I guess, you know, just to, to kind of to, to take us uh, down to the runway, uh, I'd love to learn all about this new uh, bar culture you're working on. Yeah, I, um, <clears throat> Manhattan's a very, Manhattan and New York's a very funny place to be a bartender because a lot of the great cocktail bars are like based out of the West Village, the East Village has like a hub of cocktail bars, Tribeca. It's all downtown. Okay, let's let's just let's get at it. It's all downtown or like the Nomad area or parts of Brooklyn. So I live on the Upper East Side, um, and Uptown has not really been known for nightlife, if we'll say that. Yes. But it's a great, but it's a neighborhood, and it's a neighborhood that's wanted bars in the past, and we've had a few things, but nothing highly successful. And I live up there. The two owners of um, Seamstress also has other, our sister brother Gilroy live up there. And if, I've always said, and I joked to people over years past, like if I had money, I could open a place. Where would I open it? And I always said the Upper East Side, and people thought it was crazy. So I'm, you know, after I was done at Dead Rabbit, it took some time to figure out what I wanted to do. I had no idea. I was sitting having a bowl of ramen with Steve Laycock, one of the owners, just having a ramen hanging out. And he was telling me about the new spot and looks at me and goes, Do you want to be a part of this? <laughs> I had to think about it, but I sort of said yes within that week. And the whole concept is bringing downtown uptown, giving people that, that great cocktail experience in the neighborhood without having to leave. And that's, I think, the best part is people walk away from the space and they, they're like, I can't believe I just got a phenomenal cocktail in my neighborhood and I can just come here for that. And it's so nice to know that we are now a destination, not just for people in the neighborhood, but people around New York and from out of town. <clears throat> they come in town. Um, and we get so many thank yous. I love that. That's the best part. People are like, thank you for opening up <laughs> town. And, you know, I, I was a little, I was nervous um, at first. Um, I had a lot of confidence in the area, but I was definitely nervous. Um, but I love the clientele. It's probably, and my bar staff 
all agreed, it's probably the best clientele I've had in New York. Uh, the nicest, nicest, most courteous, um, cordial individuals, like really engaged, really interested, really sophisticated palates. Um, and we've just, I don't know, it's like a lot of bars, you have to worry about things getting stolen and whatnot. We have never had issues with that at our bar. It's just, it's really a phenomenal place. I've got a spectacular staff. I have no idea how I scored every single one of the people who are on my staff right now. It's really mind-blowing, the talent that I have. Uh, we've got great food coming out of the kitchen. People come for the burger. It's like been named by Thrillist as one of the top burgers in New York. Um, and I'm excited. I'm super stoked. We're, we're switching over our menu the end of this month we have a lot of great additions from our bar staff um and i'm so excited to like you know pimp out their drinks <laughs> and showcase their talents and it's a it's a comfortable spot you know it's not pretentious and i think that's the best the best takeaway from the whole endeavor yes yeah, so are you there like on, i mean are you behind the bar are you managing are you kind of in and out what what's your role with them right now i think that's everything i do right yeah i i do i do bartend there just did it eight bartending shifts in a row stretch like last week covering for people I, bar I bartend there it's important for me I like to keep my skills level up I love being behind the bar um, it makes me very happy it keeps my arms in shape um, I, yeah so I, I do that sometimes I'm on the floor managing I've done I've done pretty much every job in house you can do um, except cook they won't let me do that but I've expoed in there I've bar backed I've done run the front door I've managed the floor um, if there's a job in there, I've done it, and I will always do it. Um, so, yeah, but I, I even just like to be in the space for a few hours a night if I'm in town. And I think it's really important to, to be there to, for the energy and the vibe of the place. And I've seen you behind the stick, and I know that it's it's clear that you love being back there. And, and you know, I think you do, having witnessed your work, I think you do bridge uh, you kind of do a lot of things. You entertain, you connect, you obviously have the talent uh, with regards to your mixed drinks, and uh, I can only imagine how powerful that is for a new concept. Uh, but I know you travel quite extensively as well. Any any fun trips, any consulting, anything fun coming up? Um, I'm going to Cabo in November, but a, a law firm has hired me to teach cocktail classes. That's pretty cool, right? I guess that's where our industry's going, right? That's like the you've arrived gig, right? <laughs> yeah, they're like, can we send you down for our company retreat? And I was like, oh, of course you can. Um, yeah, I mean, there's some there's some exciting travel coming up. There's a few really key cocktail conferences, like San Antonio Cocktail Conference, uh, Golden State. I think it's happening in San Diego. I'm going to be there uh, briefly. Um, uh, I'm actually, I think the coolest thing I have left on the calendar this year is Derek Brown from Washington, D.C. has put together an amazing series of talks at the National Archives. Dude, I'm doing that, too. I'm so excited. Yes. Yeah, so when are you going? I'm going in November. And, gosh, I'm just looking at the time. We actually got to jump out. Oh, my goodness, this has gone by so fast. But you know what? Uh, it's been so good having you, Pamela. And uh, uh, let's do it again sometime. And once again, you've been licking, listen, licking, listening to The Liquid Lifestyle here with us on the Radio Northwest Network. Have an awesome evening.